Escape Pod 48 April 6, 2006 Today's story, Soul Food, by Polly Martens Hi, I'm Steve Ely, and welcome again to Escape Pod, the podcast that reads you other people's words about stuff that didn't happen. So here's an observation I've been making in fiction lately. This isn't a complaint or a prelude to any deep insights, just uh, something that made me say, hmm. I've been noticing for a few years now that there are more and more stories coming out in present tense. Have you seen that too? I haven't researched the issue much, but I'm fairly sure that even a couple of decades ago it was very rare. I mean in commercial fiction, not literary fiction or things like The Naked Lunch. The first present tense novel I can remember reading was Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. And he did it with such vividness and immediacy that I was two-thirds through the novel before I even realized it was present tense. A few years later, I saw Walter John Williams doing it. And now suddenly it seems it's all over the place. William Gibson's writing in present tense, Charles Strauss, Cory Doctorow. I haven't seen any fantasy novels doing it yet, but perhaps I just haven't been looking in the right places. Out of curiosity, I just went back and looked through all of the old Escape Pod stories. Out of 59 stories that I could quickly dig up the text for, 17 were either entirely or partly in present tense. That includes a couple of odd formats like faux news stories or lectures to demon hunting teams. But still, more than 25% is a surprising number for a grammatical form that everyone always says is a bad idea. So what's going on here? It seems to be conventional wisdom that past tense is the right form for fiction because it creates a sense of story. That once-upon-a-time feeling, where everything's already happened, so you just know it's going to go from beginning to end. The language of narrative requires order, and past tense says, here, this is the order things happened in. But many of the present tense works I've read have done it very effectively, almost transparently, so it can't be the only way our brains are wired. If I had to form a theory, and, well, this is an intro, so I do, I'd say that this could be the influence of screen entertainment on our sense of story. The visual cortex doesn't have narrative, it just has image, it lives in the present. And a lot of action shows have plots that fall apart if you start to think about them. But the action engages us, so we turn our inner critics off and live in the present and enjoy it. I think we're starting to see that in prose fiction. For better or worse, we're getting more stories and novels that engage us the same way TV and movies and video games do. Done properly, I think it's possible present tense has a certain wow button in the brain that keeps you locked in. Done badly, of course, it sounds terrible and throws away centuries of literary tradition for no good reason. So do I think we'll see more present tense? Yeah, probably. And that's okay with me, as long as I can figure out a way to only read the really good writers. Lucky for us, here's one now. We're pleased this week to present Soul Food by Pauli Martens, a first contact story of a decidedly different flavor. Mr. Martens is another of our favorite longtime authors at Escape Pod. His story, In His Footsteps, was our fourth episode, and his story, Connie Maybe, from January, has gotten some of our best feedback ever with a hilarious reading by Wichita Rutherford. He lives in upstate New York, and is far more successful in his fiction career now than he was as a songwriter, with song titles such as You Ain't Never Had No Lovin' If You Never Made It With a Chimpanzee, and I Hope That When They Kill Me, They At Least Tell Me Why. It's just a shame they weren't country songs. Today's story, Soul Food, first appeared in Andromeda Spaceways In-Flight magazine. I hope you've saved room for dessert. 
because it's story time. Soul Food by Paul E. Martens They are a quick lot, these humans. They dart about, rushing here, there, everywhere, as if something were chasing them. They speak quickly as well. I have to remember the sounds they make, then replay them in my memory at a slower speed to decipher their words. And my mission is not made any easier by the way they perceive it, and therefore me. To them, the fact that I have come to eat one of them automatically makes me a monster. Ah, but if they are willing to sacrifice one of themselves to this monster, what does that say of them? The landing site is far from any habitation, in an open field, surrounded by tall, brown and green stationary objects that look remarkably like larger versions of myself. I am met there by a male whom I understand to be an employee of what passes for a planetary authority, something called the United Nations. He approaches me more slowly than humans are wont to move, as if his inclination to run away is overcome only by a great act of will. Even his speech is slow enough to understand. Ah, uh, he says. Greetings, Wit Bolador. The people of Earth welcome you. My name is John Burks. He is tall as humans go, almost half my height. After some hesitation, he reaches out with one of his upper limbs, of which he has only two. I bend slightly and touch his limb with one of my own. He flinches and takes a step back. Thank you. You are your planet's representative, I ask. Yes. Color leaves his face. No, I mean, I'm just here to meet you. I'm not the one who, you know... Please, don't be frightened. I promise you it is not my intention to gobble up each and every human I meet. He makes a sound. <laughs> and I am not sure if he is nervous or embarrassed. Well, actually, I really wasn't sure what to expect. I mean, we all knew why you were coming, and I guess I kind of thought you would have these huge sharp teeth with saliva dripping from your fangs with a napkin around your neck, a fork in one hand and a knife in another. I am here for the taste of just one soul and only the soul of your choosing. We are not savages. I am not here to engage in some barbaric ritual. I assure you that, although my mission may seem horrific to you, it is really the best way to determine if a race is ready to join the community of planets. You couldn't just say, lick someone? No. Maybe just eat a foot or a couple of fingers? I'm afraid not. In fact, ideally, we should consume a number of individuals to get the full flavor of a race. In deference to the candidate species and our own sensibilities, we make do with just one. Oh, uh, nice of you. Not at all. We are glad to do what we can. I gesture with my upper limbs. Not that I am not glad to have met you, John Burks, but I wonder that there are not more humans here to greet me. Well, um, the fact is, with Bolador, the UN decided to keep your arrival as quiet as possible to avoid any incidents. We just weren't sure how people would react. We didn't want widespread panic or even assassination attempts. I'm sorry, but not everybody is convinced that joining your community of planets is worth sacrificing a human life. We have been walking as we talk, and we continue to do so in silence as I consider his words. That the humans have not rushed to toss one of their kind into my gaping maw is, in my view, a point in their favor. And besides that, he continues, 
Anyone with enough authority to warrant their being here also had enough authority to find somewhere else they had to be, in case you got off your ship and started devouring everyone within devouring distance. We appear to be moving towards some sort of vehicle, and indeed this proves to be the case. It has four wheels, five if I count one inside the vehicle, and a platform on the back with bars at the height of my limbs. It seems the humans have nothing large enough to accommodate me, and I must ride in the back, hanging on with all six limbs to keep from being thrown from the vehicle as John Burke's rockets along strangely empty roads to our destination. We are met by another human, this one not as tall as John Burke's, and with a substantially darker integument. This new human and John Burke's touch limbs, and the new one says, About time you got here. You know how I feel about being alone in the woods. He, I am almost certain it is a male, looks at me with wide eyes. Although maybe there was something to be said for being alone. John Burks makes a noise which I believe to be laughter. Relax, Kenny. He's probably not going to eat you. He turns to me and says, Wit Bolador, this is my friend and colleague, Kenny Nakome. Kenny is also an expendable low-level drudge at the UN. Kenny, Wit Bolador, ambassador of the Kregnan and the community of planets. I bow and reach out a limb. How do you do, Kenny Nakome? He touches my limb, barely, and says, I am well, sir. Thank you. He steps to one side and gestures at a structure behind him. This will be your home while you are on Earth. I hope you will find it satisfactory. It appears to be large enough for me to enter easily and of recent manufacture. It seems to be more than adequate, if a bit remote. I assume it is safely out of devouring distance. John Burks's mouth turns up at the corners, revealing his teeth. For a moment I think it is a display of ferocity for my mocking him, but I soon realize it is meant to show he is pleased or amused in some way. Absolutely, he says. And now that the poor parlors are out of the way, let's go in and relax. I wonder, Wet Bolador, if you've ever tried a refreshment called beer. It turns out that beer is very much like a Kregnan beverage of which I am fond, and it seems to have much the same effect on humans and Kregnan alike. Bolador, my friend, John says. Have you considered Kenny here as a snack? Hey, says Kenny. A selfless, dedicated servant of mankind. Someone who lives only for the betterment of his fellows. Exactly the kind of tasty treat to convince you how wonderful we are. Don't listen to him, Bolador. He's drunk. He knows that the only reason I work for the UN is to escape my father's coffee plantation and meet women. He drinks some beer, as do I. John, on the other hand. He blinks. Wait. Seriously. John, do you know who would be perfect? Marguerite's aunt. John chokes and sprays Kenny and me with beer. Christ, Kenny, shut the hell up, will you? He looks at me, but not directly, as if gauging my reaction to Kenny's statement. I remain silent. Finally, he says to me, I'm sorry, Bolador. My wife made me promise not to even mention her aunt under penalty of... Well, if you have anything like marriage on your planet, you can guess some of the potential penalties. The thing is, says Kenny, Augusta Van Rensselaer is probably the best humanity has to offer. She really is a selfless, dedicated servant of mankind. She travels around the world making life better for people. She's tireless and unstoppable. She's like a force of nature. Yeah, says John, like a hurricane or a tidal wave. You don't agree that this ant would be suitable, I ask. He takes some time to answer. Maybe. Okay, probably she'd be ideal. If she weren't Marguerite's aunt. Besides, she doesn't like me. She doesn't think I'm good enough for Marguerite. 
Well, no one thinks you're good enough for Marguerite, says Kenny. Yeah, but I don't think Augusta would think anyone was good enough. She's really judgmental. That's why she goes around trying to improve things. She weighs everything in the balance and finds it all wanting. Forceful, I ask. Forceful. Ha! She's like a warrior saint, making people do good because they're afraid of what she might do to them if they don't. I don't think she's ever actually hurt anyone, but she always looks like she would if she didn't get her own way. She makes generals cry and dictators run home to their mamas. I see. Well, it doesn't matter anyway. If she is the most qualified candidate, that will automatically disqualify her. No committee of human beings could ever come up with the best anything. John and Kenny report to their superiors that they are unlikely to be consumed as soon as they cross my threshold, and soon there is a parade of dignitaries that comes to see me at my retreat. All of them attempt to persuade me of the worth of their species and how unnecessary my predation of one of their number would be. I am subjected to a seemingly endless stream of platitudes and clichés, indistinguishable from those of a hundred other worlds. John and Kenny and I spend a lot of time together, much of it drinking beer. One night some exalted plenipotentiary or other makes an unannounced visit, arriving in a long black car preceded and succeeded by other long black cars and motorcycles. He is introduced to me with much ceremony by a liveried minion, he recites the usual list of humankind's accomplishments in the arts and sciences, the progress from the primitive to the sublime. Wait, I say. He stops, looking surprised that I would think to interrupt him. I turn to Kenny, who is standing next to me. I have decided to eat this one. What better exemplar of all that is wonderful about your kind could there be? Take him to my chef to be prepared. I wink, something I have learned from my human friends. Kenny bows, biting the inside of his mouth as he tries not to laugh. It will be as you say, Whitpolador. What would most please you, boiled, broiled, or baked? The official skin becomes several shades lighter. He stammers. I, 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 I was told that you wouldn't. I mean, you, you can't. I'm not. He looks left, then right, then turns and runs from the house, with none of the ceremony attendant on his arrival. Kenny and I laugh and toast each other with newly opened beers. But, as much fun as it was, I know I was wrong to behave as I did. My mission is serious, with serious consequences for Earth and the community of planets. It is time. The next day I have Kenny and John advise the UN that I would like to meet their chosen representative within two days. Despite John's prediction, the UN does pick Augusta von Rensselaer. There were others considered, but she volunteers. Apparently, the force of her personality is such that neither the other candidates nor the members of the committee argues with her. She announces that she will agree to represent the people of Earth if I can convince her that I am worthy of her. But the purpose of my mission is to allow humans to demonstrate their worth. She is short and round, with red cheeks and short, pale yellow hair. I find I am uncomfortable when she stares at me with her blue eyes. She makes a noise that sounds like, Hmph! Her eyes reach into me and rummage through my being. Look, I don't mind sacrificing myself for humankind. That's what my whole life has been about. Before I do, though, I want to be sure that contact with you will be good for them. How do I know it won't ruin them? I consider my answer. Before I can reply, she barks at me. Well? I jump, then say, more quickly than I know I could speak, we offer peace and prosperity, a union of sentience that makes each species better than it would be alone. Peace and prosperity! Ha! 
I suppose you'll make the trains run on time, too? Well, yes, we... What do you mean by peace? Are you going to turn us into a planet of lotus eaters, everyone too excited by their new intergalactic toys to notice that they've been enslaved by your union of sentience? No, we... And what kind of prosperity? Are you just going to give everyone everything they want on a silver platter, sapping all character from them? I promise you that... And what's in it for you? What do you expect to gain from this? Is there some mineral here whose value we're too ignorant to know that you're hoping to exploit? Will humans be slave labor? Food? Miss Van Rensselaer, the idea is monstrous. Oh, it is, is it? I thought eating someone was the whole reason you were here. That is a different matter altogether. That is not for food, but for information. Hmm. And how does that work, exactly? At some time in the past, my kind, or a primitive ancestor, evolved the ability to discern the qualities, the essences, if you will, of our prey. It has been speculated that, for reasons not clearly understood, there was some quality in the prey that made it either more or less nutritious. And as the prey evolved to neosentience, the quality became concentrated in what could be called the souls of the animals, that it was something that could be thought of as goodness or virtue. We still retain that ability, although we no longer have, as part of our diet, any creature that could by any stretch of imagination be considered sentient or approximating sentience. After we joined the community of planets, it eventually became clear that this ability made us the best judges of the worth of prospective members, better than any previous objective or subjective methods, whether computer programs or trials before other members. Ah! The word strikes me like an explosion of sound. What a load of hooey! I blink slowly, as if my eyelids can protect me from her onslaught. I beg your pardon. Hooey! Nonsense! Balderdash! In a lifetime of listening to professional deliverers of self-serving twaddle, I have never heard a more blatant example of a statement meant to deceive while ostensibly reassuring its victim. Madam, I assure you... She holds up one of her limbs, as if she wants to push my words back inside my mouth. Don't bother. It's just a more preposterous version of the same thing the strong always tell the weak. It's for your own good, while they take everything they want. No. We only seek to help you. Truly. Then why not just do it? Why all the rigmarole and mumbo-jumbo? Why threaten to withhold your help if you don't think we're good enough? Just to reinforce your feelings of superiority? So you can smugly go on your way thinking, Oh, well, you gave us a chance. It's not your fault that we blew it. If you can help us and you can even consider not doing so, then I think it's we who should be judging you, not the other way around. I know that I need to be convinced that you're good enough to eat me. She talks too fast. Ideas and statements fly from her as fast as neutrinos. I need time to weigh her assertions, examine her opinions, formulate answers to her questions. I wonder if there isn't some substance in what she says but the wanton swiftness of her words leaves me dizzy, shaken. Please, I say, I will think over what you have said, but I must have time. I am sorry to be impolite, but I must ask you to let me be alone. I find your presence disconcerting. The ends of her lips move upwards. She looks like someone who has achieved a victory, even if her opponent does not realize it. I am her opponent. Not only did I not realize she had won, I had been unaware that there was a contest. John says, You're asking the wrong guy, Bolador. I'm the last person in the world to give advice on how to win the approval of Augusta Van Rensselaer. Heck, I don't know if I'll ever be able to get the approval of her niece again. 
especially if you go and eat Aunt Augusta. But Miss Van Rensselaer volunteered. She insisted. Surely your wife can't hold you responsible. He looks at me. Either you're not married, or marriage is a whole lot different where you come from. A spouse isn't required to have a rational reason for being mad at you. It's a hidden clause in the marriage contract. I have noticed Miss Van Rensselaer seems to argue by dint of the force of personality rather than by merely relying on logic. I wonder if there is some way that I can meet her on her own terms. Uh, no offense, Spolador. I like you a lot, but there's no way you can meet Aunt Augusta on her own terms. There are maybe three people on the planet who could stand toe-to-toe with her, and they would lose because they'd be going on sheer ego, and she has that altruism thing going for her. He muses a moment. How about giving her a little taste of what you have in store for us if we qualify to join the community of planets? His mouth forms an O, as if he's realized he's said something he wishes he hadn't. By taste, I was speaking colloquially. I mean, a sample. I don't mean you should let her take a bite out of your leg or something. I'm all over his words. Perhaps. Perhaps. I continue to mull. Yes, it is possible. I should be able to arrange for the eradication of several diseases, cancer and AIDS and so on. Do you think she might look favorably upon such a move? He smiles. I don't see how anyone could help but look favorably on that. Even her. You think you've done us a favor? She demands. Is this the sort of thing we can expect after being dragged into your community of planets? Well, yes, that is. You don't think that death is natural? Yes, these diseases were a source of suffering on our planet. Yes, we were working to eliminate them ourselves. But you just waltz in and wave your magic wand and we're supposed to be grateful? I... So what happens to the next batch of victims? Where will their cures be? How will it make them feel to know they're not good enough to cure? Oh, no, we've shown your people how to... And what are we supposed to do with all the healthy people? You've added millions of mouths to be fed when there are already millions going hungry. Have you thought about that? I have to admit, to myself at least, that I had not. She doesn't give me time to admit it to her. Of course not. Typical colonialists. Dazzle the ignorant natives with a little hocus-pocus, then take everything they have because they're too stupid to know they have it. No, wait. I wish she would at least mitigate the rate of her onslaught. Give me time to think. We can take care of it. We can show you how to make food. And an energy source that will not only help you make food, but power your vehicles, heat your homes. She doesn't say anything. She just looks at me. At me, and into me, and through me. The silence goes on and on until I begin to wish that she would start snapping her questions at me again. Finally, she says, All right, go ahead. We'll see what we see. It is a relief to communicate with my team in orbit above the Earth to set in motion the transfer of knowledge and materials needed. Their speech is measured. If they ask questions, they come one at a time, with sufficient time between them to give considered answers. There is no pressure when I deal with the off-worlders. I can be at ease. I don't want the task to end. Perhaps I prolong it a bit, do a little more for the humans than I had planned. Surely Miss Van Rensselaer can only think this is a good thing. Yet, when I anticipate her reaction, I wince and try to envision how she might view our efforts negatively, and we do a little more. It is not a process that is over in the blink of an eye. Groundwork must be laid. There are infrastructures that must be put in place. The whole Earth economy must be rebuilt. And we must proceed at our own pace. 
It is not something that can be done with the reckless abandon of humans. It takes years. Finally, I meet with Augusta Van Rensselaer again. Her hair is more white than gold, but her eyes are still lively and probing. She is smiling. I sigh, knowing that I have done my job at last. Does everything meet with your approval? I ask, confident of her response. Well... It can't be. I am unable to speak. What more can we do? Relax, Whitbolador, I'm just kidding. Everything is wonderful. You've more than earned my approval. I can breathe again. Then there remains but one last duty to be performed, and Earth can be admitted to the community of planets. I find I am actually looking forward to consuming Miss Van Rensselaer. She is an exceptional being. I imagine she will have a piquancy I have never before experienced. I am embarrassed to find my mouth watering. No. No? But you said, I said everything is wonderful, and it is. It's so wonderful that we don't need anything more from you. At least not now. Probably not for some time. She smiles with a sweetness I am sure must be counterfeit. So, thanks, but no thanks, if you know what I mean. But, but... She looks thoughtful, tapping her chin with a finger. Unless... There is still hope that my mission can be accomplished. Yes? Unless? Well, I've been thinking about this whole idea of judging someone or some species from a taste of soul. I know I kind of dismissed the whole idea before, but I actually think it may have some merit. There is that sweet smile again. It makes me nervous. I think I might be convinced that joining the community of planets is a good idea, if I eat you. What? I even brought my own utensils. She opens a bag and takes out a knife and fork, then, to my horror, a chainsaw. I flee. The room, the building, the planet. Earth is a madhouse. A madhouse! The community of planets would become the chaos of planets if we admit the humans. It is an easy decision to leave them behind as we fly from their solar system. The problem is, thanks to my efforts to win the approval of one human woman, I can't help but feel that, very shortly, they will probably be coming right behind us. And that was our story. I just want to know this. Why can't we have that woman as president? All the best candidates have to be fictional. It's just not fair. Hey, maybe this guy can explain it. Hey there, this is Dr. Dave of Shrinkwrap Radio, the planet's first podcasting psychologist coming to you from the beautiful wine country in Sonoma County, California. This is the show that brings you all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make you a little bit dangerous. A longtime psychologist myself, I believe there are lots of psychology students and armchair psychologists out there who are interested in the latest news on what makes us tick. So to feed that interest, each week I'll interview fascinating people in and around the world of psychology in a half-hour format. We'll look at everything from consumer psychology to eco-psychology, from gestalt therapy to psychoanalysis, from multiple personalities to serial killers, from hypnosis to dream work, and so much more. So check us out at www.shrinkwrapradio.com.
www.thinkingmindfulness.com. And remember, it's all in your mind. I've listened to Shrink Rap Radio, and Dr. Dave has an engaging style and does a lot of interviews on the frontiers of modern psychology. There's certainly a lot to think about there. Today's featured listener is James Patrick Kelly. You might have heard of him. He's a longtime author and recent podcaster, a multiple Hugo and Nebula winner, and one of this year's Hugo nominees. He has a regular column in Asimov's called On the Net, and in this month's issue, he features several great SF and literary podcasters like Mer Lafferty and Mike and Evo from The Dragon Page, and Paul Jenkins. He also says, Escape Pod is one of the most ambitious SF podcasts and probably my current favorite. That's very high praise, so thanks, Jim. And I know you're podcasting your own greatest hits at jimkelly.net, but if you've got anything left over, I really hope you'll send us something again. Escape Pod is released on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. So if you like it, share it with a friend. That's all I've got on that this week. I think I burned out all my pith last week. Our music is by permission of Dai Kaiju, guaranteed never to be the answer on Wheel of Fortune, also guaranteed to rock your world. That was our show for this week. Our closing quote comes from novelist and essayist Joan Didion. The fancy that extraterrestrial life is by definition of a higher order than our own is one that soothes all children and many writers. I hope it soothes you too. We'll see you next week, and have fun. <laughs>